All right, so if you were here last week, um, we were in Job chapter 4 through 7, and this week we're picking up where we left off in 8. I'm hoping to get through 14, um, but that's a big chunk, so we're going we're gonna to truck through this. Um, so we're going to do a quick recap, and so I just want to uh, first show you uh, the dates where you can go back, because I'm just going to quickly do a real brief, broad view of what we've done so far. Um, but if you want to get those details and you weren't here, uh, these are the dates. So we did the intro in Chapter 1 for January 15th of this year. All of these were from 2023. So January 15th was intro in Chapter 1. March 8th was Chapter 2 and 3. And then last week, July 9th, uh, was 4 through 7. And so today we're going to jump in at 8. But real quick, a quick recap. So Job in general, an overview, Job is full of valuable lessons that help us in many areas of life. And many try to narrow it down to one or two main themes, uh, that Job is about suffering or Christian suffering, it's about the sovereignty of God. But I think it is too rich to boil down to just one or two things. So I want to pull out everything that we possibly can from the book of Job, um, like how useful it is uh, to teach us how to read our Bibles, uh, for example. So um, in chapter 1, We established, not just by the author or by Job or men, but by God himself, that Job is blameless and upright, and he feared God and shunned evil. So this is what we know. This is established about him in the very beginning. Uh, There's a meeting in heaven that takes place, and Satan is given permission to take everything from Job, but not to harm him directly. So in one swoop, in a moment, He loses absolutely everything. So he was considered one of the greatest men in Edom. He had flocks beyond flocks. It gives the exact numbers in the first chapter of how much he had. Basically, he is the most wealthy man in the area. Uh, When they talk about him being the greatest, he probably had authority either as a judge or a king in some regard. He's very highly respected. He has 10 children, and all of it, absolutely all of it in a moment is taken away from him because Satan has given permission to do that. And so we see Job's first, in chapter 1, his first profound statement in Job 1.20. I don't have that on the screen for you, but it says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. So even after this horrible loss. He still worships God. He gives him credit and humbles himself to say, I didn't deserve anything I had anyway. God is free to give it to me and he's free to take it from me. In chapter two and three, we see another scene where again, Job passes this trial. Satan's job, his goal is that he wants to get Job to curse God to his face. That's Satan's challenge. I can get Job to curse you. He only loves you because he's got all that stuff, right? God says, take it, and Job clearly still loves God. So Satan comes again, and again, he's given permission, this time to attack Job directly, because Satan's argument is, well, a man will give up everything he has if his life is protected. As long as he holds on to his health, he'll be happy, right? So that's the only reason he really loves you now. And so God, again, gives him permission. So then Job suffers these horrible boils, 
uh, this terrible sickness. He's starving. He's losing weight. His, uh, we're going to talk about how his friend showed up. They didn't even recognize him. He's in such bad shape. They can't even recognize who he is anymore. That's how bad this is. And again, we know Satan wanted him to curse God. So we know that it had to be the worst of the worst uh, conditions. And again, we see Job's profound faith as another example to us in Job 2.10. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? This same idea, this humility that I am worthy of nothing. God can give me whatever he wants. Shall we accept good? and not accept diverse, or adversity. Um, and at the end of that chapter, so in, at the end of chapter 3, Job's friends arrive. And we see that Job's friends start out well. They see and they mourn with him. It's almost like a Jewish funeral practice. They tear their robes. They put ashes on their head. They mourn with him in silence. They say nothing. So in Jewish culture, at a funeral, it's the family member. Like if if... A husband dies, the wife, the widow, she would be the first to speak. And no one would speak until she did, or vice versa. Someone in the family directly of the deceased would be given permission to be the first one to speak, and no one would speak until they did, and then others would be opened up to speak. So they kind of did that. Job was in such bad shape that it's like he's, he's lost, he's gone. And so they mourn in that way. They sit for a week. It says for seven days they sat in the ash heap, which is basically the dump in that day, because outside the city, that's where they would burn all the waste. And so he's sitting in an ash heap with smoldering ashes all around him, and his friends sit with him and mourn. So that's actually the best thing they could have done. We're going to talk a little bit more about that today. Um, But then we got into chapter 4, 4 through 7. So in chapter 4, we hear from Eliphaz. He's likely the oldest and therefore by cultural standards, the wisest, even though we see uh, his wisdom is clearly very limited. <clears throat> and he starts talking. And when they start talking, that's when we really see um, just how horrible his friends are. Um, but again, it's very likely that the same way Satan speaks for others, we know there's at least one example in the New Testament where Peter says something to Jesus because Jesus says, I'm going to be killed. And Peter says, no, you're not going to be p- killed. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. To Peter, obviously he doesn't think Peter is Satan, but he thinks Satan is speaking through him in some way. So we know that this can happen. We think, I think this is what Satan's doing through the friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, is that he's kind of using them like a mouthpiece. Because again, his goal is to get Job to curse God. That's what he's trying to do. So the debate begins, chapters four through seven. The basic argument is on one side, the friend's side, The wicked face calamity, so if you do something wrong, you're going to get something bad. And the righteous prosper. If you obey God, everything goes well for you and everything works out. And then Job is, you don't know what you're talking about, leave me alone. right? Because Job knows, and we know, because it was established in the beginning, he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. This did not happen to him because of some kind of wickedness or sin in his life. Now, it doesn't mean he doesn't have sin. You know, no one is perfect. All have sinned. We're going to talk about that a bit today. Um, But he recognizes that I haven't done something to deserve this level of of trouble, adversity, right? Um, And I think we can understand that. So uh, you can look at those dates. 
um, and listen to those. And we have those posted on the, our website, on Spotify, Apple Music, uh, SoundCloud, I think. Um, so you can find it different places, those dates, to really catch up on all the details uh, as I preach through those. Okay, um, But today, we're in chapter 8. So if you would open, if you haven't already, to Job chapter 8. And that's where we're going to begin today. Job chapter 8, verse 1. All right, so as Eliphaz started out in chapter 4, he was somewhat like he spoke a little bit like a politician. And so he was a, a little bit, his, his attacks on Job were a little bit more gently given. We're going to see as we go on with Bildad and then with Zophar, they get more direct. Um, Zophar, in fact, almost sounds hostile, like he's angry in response. Okay, So we're going to get to Bildad and Zophar today, hopefully. And you're going to see they're a lot more blunt and straightforward. So we're going to see uh, Bildad's bluntness right here at the beginning. So Job chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you speak these things, and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? You hear that that insult. You're full of hot air, Job. How long are you going to keep going on? Does God subvert judgment, or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. This is hurtful. This is extremely hurtful. He lost 10 children, and he's saying it's their fault. Your kids were killed because they clearly must have been sinners. That's why they died. This is extremely hurtful. He's being very blunt to him. But we can agree with his rhetorical questions. Does God subvert judgment or does the Almighty pervert justice? No. We know that it's no. Job knows that it's no. Uh, verse 5. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, Surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. Here we see that continued argument. This problem has come to you because of wickedness that you've been hiding. If you would just repent and seek God, everything comes back right away. You get restored immediately. That's a false promise, an empty promise. Verse 8. For inquire, please, of the former age, and consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words from their heart? Here, Bildad is appealing to history. History is great for us. We should all study history. History is important. It's valuable. However, it's not the sole foundation of what we believe about God, right? So here's another flaw. We saw with Eliphaz, his was his life experience. He says, even as I have seen. So he's going based off, here's what I see around me in the present. Here, Bildad is appealing to another, to history. History is a great source of information. It's not the only source we go to. It's not proof of what we believe, um, but it is valuable. And that's what he's appealing to here. Can't we look back at our ancestors? And see what happened to them and draw from them and come up with a system for how we, you know, know things that are going to go. But again, we're going to see this, this wrong argument. Verse 11. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the reeds flourish without water? These are plants that grow right on river edges. They need tons of water to grow. 
Um, so if the river is dry, they die instantly because they need that constant source of water. While it is yet green and not cut down, it withers before any other plant. So are the paths, so in the same way, so are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the hypocrite shall perish. So he's comparing to someone who's forgotten God. Even though Job has worshipped God this whole time, we saw in his first argument against Eliphaz, he appealed directly to God. He believes in God. He's even accusing God himself of all of this calamity. But here, Bildad has an empty accusation that he's forgotten God. He doesn't consider God. He's just completely moved on without him or something. Verse 14, whose confidence shall be cut off and whose trust is a spider's web. He leans on his house, but it does not stand. He holds it fast, but it does not endure. He grows green in the sun and his branches spread out in his garden. His roots wrap around the rock heap and look for a place in the stones. If he just, If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have not seen you. So he's saying, because you've forgotten God, you are like someone, instead of standing on a concrete slab, you're standing on a spider web as if it's going to hold you up. So this is just him talking about how weak your foundation is, weak your strength is, because you've forgotten God, which he hasn't. Verse 19, Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth others will grow. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. Again, this is meant to be encouraging. He's trying to turn the page now, and I just want to encourage you, if you'll just repent and seek God, all this good will come to you. And that's still a teaching today. Like that, this is really, really old. This is likely the oldest book in the Bible, but this teaching was there then. It's here now. It hasn't gone away. There's still people who believe this. And there have been times, even on our own, we may not say it out loud directly, but I've had times in my life where I kind of felt like everything's going good. Like, and people even joke about it. Like, uh, like if you guys get together and play golf or something and you get a good shot, it's like, you must be living right, right? It's kind of that idea. We all can kind of slip into that idea. Like, I'm living right. Things go well. If I have sin in my life, things, you know, we can fall short in that thinking in our own minds. So we have to watch out for this. This is that same teaching. So real fast, I want to point out something, though, here in this chapter, in chapter 8. I want you to compare. So verse 6, chapter 8, verse 6, and verse 20. There are interesting statements here that Bildad is making about Job. So it says, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. And then in verse 20, behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evildoers. Well, we already saw, here's how God describes him in Job 1.8. And then he has the exact same statement in 2.3. So if you go back to the previous one, that's how, he, that's how God described him. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Bildad is missing it completely. He's completely opposite. He says, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. We already know 
We already know Job is blameless, pure and upright, and blameless before God. This is very interesting that he's pointing out these exact words that God has himself has used to describe Job. All right, moving on, chapter 9, verse 1 through 13, we're going to see the awesome power of God as Job describes him. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? What a powerful question. If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? He removes the mountains and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades. Recognize these if you know anything about constellation, the stars. That's what he's pointing out. He's pointing out all the stars. Uh, You remember when Cason did the study in chapter one? It's almost an afterthought. God created the, the light for the day and the light for the evening it's describing all of that, and then it's just one short sentence. He created the stars also. This is a passing thought, right? He's pointing to this. He's pointing to the stars, the constellation, the bear, Orion. These are ones we still point out today. The Pleiades you probably haven't heard of. It's a cluster within Taurus, so Taurus might be more familiar. Um, it's one that's part of like the zodiac signs and all that kind of new age stuff. But Pleiades is within Taurus. So these are constellations he's pointing out. And the chambers of the south. Verse 10. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. This verse 10, uh, Eliphaz in his first argument made the exact same statement about God. Um, So we know, and you and I would definitely agree with this. This is an obvious truth about God. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. Verse 11. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. Um, He goes by me and I do not see him. He moves past, I do not perceive him. Last time we talked a little bit how the reality is whatever it is within us, we know God is present. We know God is here even now, but we don't see him. We don't. There's some kind of veil, some kind of shield. We talked about that a little bit last time. So again, Job just pointing out the power of God, the wonders of God, and who he is. Um, 14 through 24, here we go. Verse 14, how then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. So uh, Job's going to make these statements about being righteous um, or being just or doing right things. What he means is kind of this human standard of righteous. If I were righteous by my own standard or by anything, I wouldn't even come close to you. Um, So he's not talking about God's perfect standard of righteousness, just our own. So for though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. Look there, this comparison. 
So in Job 2.3, we're in verse 17, 9.17. He says, he multiplies my wounds without cause. Let's look at Job 2.3 here on the screen. God told Satan whenever he came the second time. He said, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil, just like in 1.8, right? But he said, and he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me, so God, talking about himself, you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Job is unaware of this conversation. It's really interesting. He has no idea what's going on in the heavenly places, but he hit it right on the head, didn't he? He's pointing it out. He multiplies my wounds without cause. He recognized and he gives the, the correct um, credit to God as the one in control who brought this upon him. And what a humble statement and a wise one. Verse 18, he will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a matter of strength, indeed, he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. Our righteousness is filthy rags to him. I am, bla- I am blameless, right? According to God, he is. I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It is all one thing. Therefore, I say he destroys the blameless and the wicked. If the scourge slays suddenly, He laughs at the plight of the innocent. Now here, Job is about to cross the line, right? I I think this is a Hebrew phrase in poetry that probably would hit the ear a little differently then than it does in the English translation to us. But here it's kind of like, whoa, Job, you're going a little far. He laughs at the plight of the innocent. Um, But this is just talking about God's sovereignty over his situation. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who else could it be? Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They pass by like swift ships, like an eagle swooping on its prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I'll put off my sad face and wear a smile, I am afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. That's a really bad habit, and... You know, I'm, I'm guilty of doing it too, just putting on a smile and ignoring the actual inward things that are going on. That's not a good practice to do that. And I know there's a lot of like, you know, if you just are positive and, you know, everything's going to work out, don't ignore what's actually going on uh, internally. Uh, we need to face it. We need to give time to mourn and to be sad and not just brush it off. Um, it's just a little allusion to that. If I am condemned, why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him and that he should go to court together. Another humble statement that we need to remember. God is not a man. He's not like us. He's pictured in media and TV all the time as some old guy with a white beard. God is not a man like we are. We don't need to lower him down to look like us or sound like us or behave as us. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on both of us. 
That's a deep need that we all need. We need a mediator between us. Let him take his rod away from me, and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. And in chapter 10, Job continues, and here he makes that turn. Job always has a shift in all of his arguments where he stops talking to the people, to the men there, and starts talking to God. So here we see him, and this is a really valuable thing we need to take note of in our own lives. He turns his attention and speaks to God now. Chapter 10. My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Now remember to think of Job in a, in a real sense, not just a story sense. He is in absolute agony. These are, these are real cries of a sorrow that probably none of us could ever understand. So these are real um, things. But I also want you to notice as we go through, there's several places where he's got this humility to know that God is the creator. We were created from dust and to dust we will return. Um, he's got all these statements about being knit together, being made, being formed. Uh, that we're going to highlight as we go along. But here he says uh, that you should despise the work of your hands. He still has that humility to know that God is the creator. Do you have eyes of flesh? We're in verse four. Do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man that you should seek for my iniquity and search out my sin? Although you know that I am not wicked and there is no one who can deliver from your hand. True statement. God knows that he's not wicked, and this didn't happen because of that. Verse 8, your hands have made me and fashioned me in intricate unity, yet you would destroy me. Remember, I pray, that you have made me like clay, and will you turn, turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? You have granted me life and favor, and your, your care has preserved my spirit. Here it is, that, that great humility of Job uh, to point these things out. He's depicting God as a loving father creator, in these, even in this sorrow. But now we're going to see it turn. He's going to paint God a different picture now. And these things you have hidden in your heart, verse 13. And these things you have hidden in your heart, I know that this was with you. If I sin, then you mark me and will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am wicked, woe to me. Even if I am righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I am full of disgrace. See my misery. If my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion. And again, you show yourself awesome against me. So now he went from loving father creator to Fierce lion, which is also an accurate depiction of God. Um, you renew your witness against me and increase your indignation toward me. Changes and war are ever with me. Here, that word changes is not that, oh, something else is, you know, it's upheaval. I, I can't get into a rhythm. Changes. It's talking about like changing of the guard. 
you have a troop of soldiers that serve and fight, and then you have another troop that takes their place so that they get rest and that it's a constant you know, coming of the enemy. That's what he means by changes here. It's a constant onslaught of this, these things against me. Job is just one thing after another. Changes as more are ever with me. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me. I would have been as though I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease, leave me alone that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return, to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land as dark as darkness itself, as the shadow of death without any order, where even the light is like darkness. So here Job wraps up, and he wraps up all of his arguments and statements towards God with these very, very deep, sorrowful statements, um, more of this lament. And so this is going to come up in Zophar. We're going to see Zophar now as we move into 11. is even more blunt. And he's going to be insulting to Job about these kinds of statements. Job is saying that things have gotten so bad uh, in, in the previous sermon we talked about uh, Job had a statement about a hired worker knows that he gets to rest at the end of the day the sun goes down he can't work in the dark so he gets to rest and at the end of the time he gets paid right he gets his wages Job kind of compares that to himself but he doesn't know when the day is going to end he doesn't know when this period of time is going to end and so he just wants to die he doesn't want to live anymore um, and then also what's important is that he's not suicidal. We've talked about the, that before. He's not taking his own life. He recognizes God's control over his life. And so he's appealing to God in this way. So we're going to see this again. Um, we're going to move on. Chapter 11 now, verse 1. So here is Zophar, the third friend. So we've heard from Eliphaz, who was kind of gentle. And he proposed this idea of... It's if you do bad, you get bad. You do good, you get good, right? Weak argument. And we heard from Bildad. Now we're hearing from Zophar. Now what I do like about Zophar is Zophar seems to be the most zealous for God. I really like his descriptions of God. He's accurate. Um, he clearly adores God. And many of the things he, he says about him are true. And so, um, but what we're going to see the flaw with Zophar is that in that zealousness for God, he feels he needs to defend God. And that's something we can fall short in too, that we feel we've got to defend this all-powerful, incredible creator God. He does not need our help. Um, but that's what Zophar does here. So let's jump in, chapter 11. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? You see how blunt he is. He is uh, really coming out strong against Job here. For you have said, my doctrine is pure. No, he didn't actually. Job didn't say that. Um, but that's his accusation. And I am clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you. Here's a prayer. This is what should have happened. His friends should have prayed this prayer with Job. Job wants to hear from God. That's what Job wants. He wants God to speak. His friends should have stopped talking and arguing and just prayed with him. God, please speak. 
come and speak. So we hear this prayer, but it's not genuine. He, he just wants God to put him in his place, right? But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. This is true of all of us, and it's something to praise God for, his grace and his mercy and his patience for us. We do get much less than we deserve. Um, And so that is a true statement, one we should be thankful for. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Zophar has this great, great view of who God is and God's greatness. Verse 10, if he passes by, imprisons, and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? For he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? Notice he's, he's got accusations in here. For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. We have a similar saying in our culture, when pigs fly. Oh yeah, that'll happen when pigs fly, right? That's one of a few that we use. That's what this is. Um, Look back at verse three. So I think he's kind of building an accusation here against Job. So in verse three, he said, should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And then here in verse 12, for an empty headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. So he's saying, You're empty-headed, and you have empty talk. And so you becoming wise is like a colt giving birth to a man, right? You're never going to be wise because you're empty-headed, Job. Um, What a great friend. If you would prepare your heart, sorry, I'm in verse 13. If you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away, and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Here's another accusation. I think this is kind of an underlying one that they probably all feel towards Job. Because Job in his first appeal said, prove to me what I've done. Show me my transgressions. Show me my wrong. And I think they're accusing him here with this statement. If you would not let wickedness dwell in your tents. It's sort of like saying, we, know, we think or know that you were allowing evil to go on behind closed doors. Things were going on in your home other people didn't know about. And that's why this happened, Job. Because, and he's going to call him a hypocrite. And the hypocrite looks good on the outside, puts up a front, you know, shows you this righteousness. He's saying, behind closed doors, in your tents, there was something going on that no one else saw, and now God's paying you back for it. That's this accusation here. Verse 15, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear because you would forget your misery and remember it, was, remember it as waters that have passed away and your life would be brighter than noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning and you would be secure because there is hope. Yes, you would dig around you and take your rest in safety. More empty promises. You would also lie down and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked would fail and they shall not escape and their hope, loss of life. 
as a final accusation of Bildad in this speech. He's talking about the eyes of the wicked. So he's the wicked is the subject he's talking about. And it says in the very last, their hope, loss of life. So this is what he's appealing to, right? Job is begging the Lord to end his life. The hope of the wicked is loss of life. So he's telling you, you're wicked. Only a wicked person would plead with God in that way, right? So this is final accusation, the end of chapter 12. Or at the end of chapter 11, sorry. Moving on to chapter 12. So here we have Job's final response for today. Uh, It's three chapters long. And so we're going to see when we get to 14, again, that turn. So he's going to respond here to Zophar, and then he's going to turn and speak to God. Okay. Now, there are, there's lots of good descriptions here from Job um, about who God is. And so we're going to kind of jump, jump around, and I'm just going to interject here and there and talk about this. So, chapter 12, verse 1, Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. You can taste the sarcasm in that statement. Good burn, Job. All right. No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? So he's just recognizing there's truth in your statements, but you're still wrong because you're missing it. I am one mocked by his friends. Who called on God and he answered him? The just and blameless who is ridiculed. A lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. There's kind of a contrasting statement in Psalms here. Psalm 119, 105 on the screen here. A very famous verse. We've seen this. We even have a song, uh, an old song we sing. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. So the psalmist is talking about it in the right context here. The word of God is a light to my path. He's recognizing the need for it, right? Job is making a contrasting statement here. He says, a lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. If you're at ease, everything's provided. I don't need anything. And typically what happens when we live a life of ease is we stop recognizing our need for God. There's kind of this concern that we hear in Scripture all the time. You can't love God and money Money kind of corrupts the human mind quite a bit. So if you're at ease and you have all the wealth you need, people who are wealthy tend to forget their need for God on a spiritual level. So the lamp is despised. The word of God is despised in the thought of one who's at ease, who doesn't need anything. But it is made ready for those whose feet slip. The one who recognizes his need for God because he's not at ease. Um, And so we kind of see that statement there. Verse 6, the tents of robbers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure in what provides, in what God provides by his hand. But now ask the beasts, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain to you. This is pointing out, this is obvious in the world. I'm about to say something that you should be able to pick up on just by living life and seeing the world around you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? 
It should be obvious, guys. This isn't, this didn't come on me because of something I've done. God did this. It's the hand of the Lord. In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words and the mouth taste its food? Wisdom is with aged men and with length of days, understanding, appealing to that wisdom of those in the past. So now verse 13 through 25, uh, Job has this great, excellent, poetic description of God's sovereignty. And so he asks these, poses these really great statements here. So it's verse 13. With him are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. If he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. If he imprisons a man, there can be no release. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. With him are strength and prudence. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away plundered. He makes fools of the judges. He loosens the bonds of kings and binds their waists with a belt. Romans 13 talks about, there is no authority in heaven or on earth that God did not place there. God is sovereign over them all. Verse 19, he leads princes away plundered and overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and disarms the mighty. He uncovers deep things out of darkness and brings the shadow of death to light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a pathless wilderness. They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. He's talking about God being in control. Job has this great view of God. And all these statements here uh, can be uh, strengthened by verses all over the Bible, uh, especially the Psalms. There's lots of things in here that sound like the Psalms. I didn't pull all those in for you today. Um, but yeah, there's just so much in here that is just timeless wisdom that Job has here in this time. All right, chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 12. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My, he- my ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. See, he was accused of forgetting God. It's not what he's done. He wants to speak with God. But you, forgers of lies, you are all worthless physicians. So if a doctor, if you go to the doctor because something's bothering you, you have something going on, right? If he misdiagnoses what your problem is, then you're going to get poor treatment, right? If he thinks you have something you don't and prescribes medicine for that, you're going to get poor treatment. And that's exactly what's happened. His friends, as physicians, have misdiagnosed what's going on to Job, and he is getting poor treatment from his friends as a result. Verse 5, we're going to compare this to Proverbs 17, 28. Verse 5, Oh, that you would be silent, and it would be your wisdom. Oh, if only his friends had the wisdom of Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. If only his friends had had the wisdom of Solomon. Verse 6, Now hear my reasoning, and heed the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God? 
and talk deceitfully for him. Here's where Job is kind of reinforcing that idea that Zophar felt like he needed to step in and defend God in a way. He's kind of alluding to that. Like, can you speak for God? You can't speak for God. Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he searches you out? Or can you mock him as one mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you. This is true. We're going to see it at the end of the book. Um, at the very end of Job, that's what he does. He rebukes uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar for being wrong. So it is coming. He's right. If you secretly show partiality, will not his excellence make you afraid and the dread of him fall upon you? Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. Totally worthless. Your defenses are defenses of clay, as if that's going to help. Verse 13 through 19, Job is basically going to say, stop talking and please listen to what I'm saying. Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Then let come on me what may. Why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Um, It's a confusing statement. It's Sort of like if an animal, it's like to mean risking loss of one's life like an animal who tries to defend itself while carrying its prey in its mouth. Um, So I'm in the middle of going through something, trying to get through this trial. So like an animal who's hunting currently, but now I've got to defend myself against you. I'm already in this, and now I've got to try to defend myself whenever I'm broken like this, whenever I'm already facing something this hard. Why do I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Another incredible, profound faith statement from Job. I love that. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation. For a hypocrite could not come before him. Listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See now, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Who is he who will contend with me? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. Here's another turn. Job turns to God now. Only two things do not do to me. This is, he's talking to God. Then I will not hide myself from you, God. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not the dread of you make me afraid. Then call, and I will answer, or let me speak, then you respond to me. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Let's compare that to Psalm 139, 23 through 24. It's another very famous passage. It's a healthy practice, actually. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties or my thoughts, my inner thoughts, and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There's a healthy practice we see practiced in in the Psalms and we see it with David. God, show me my sin. Show me my weaknesses. Show me my transgressions. Um, This is a good thing for us to pray all the time, you know, and God can answer it and 
however many ways he wants to do that. Sometimes just by asking it, it turns your own brain on to think about it yourself and it comes to you like that. Other times you'll be reading in scripture and he'll reveal it to you. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a healthy thing to practice. God, show me where my weaknesses are. Oh, yeah, you're a glutton. So, you know, shape up. Um, it's, a, it's a healthy thing to do, to ask God to seek you, to know. Uh, verse 24, why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro? And will you pursue dry stubble? This is a humble statement. This is how Job is describing himself, a leaf or dry stubble. Um, I am nothing before you, God. For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch closely all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Man who is born of woman is, few of, is of few days and full of trouble. We're going to compare that with Romans 5.12 on the screen. Therefore, just as through one man, talking about Adam, one man's sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. Like the famous Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is speaking to the depravity of man, the original sin of man, that we all have a sin nature that we're born into. Right? This is what he's appealing to. Man who is born of woman, which is everyone, is a few days and full of trouble. We have this sin nature that brings trouble on us. Verse 2, he comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. Another very popular verse, Isaiah 40, 7 and 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The truth of the frailty of life. So not only do we have a sin nature, we are weak, we are frail, and we have a short time that we live like a flower. Verse three, and do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. We had that, that uh, image last time talking about we have limitations. God is in control of everything. He sets our boundaries. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from him that he may rest till like a hired man, he finishes his day. There's that comparison to a hired man again. Verse seven, for there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, that it will sprout again and that its tender shoots will not cease. Though its root may grow old in the earth and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water, it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. You may have seen this yourself. A tree that's been cut down continues to keep growing. And even one that looks totally dead, if it has enough water and enough life in those roots, it'll still shoot up something. Well, especially terrible with hackberry plants, but hackberry trees, but that's a whole other thing. Um, verse 10, but man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? 
As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath has passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? Important question. All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. For now you number my steps, but do not watch over my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you cover my iniquity. But as a mountain falls and crumbles away, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones, and as torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. Deeply sorrowful statement. Just as water, it says, washes away soil from the earth. It's just little by little, it's constant. A constant movement of water on a beach just breaks everything down to sand. Continues to break it down, break it down. It's like little by little, I'm facing one thing after another, God, and I am losing hope. You prevail forever against him, and he passes on. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he does not perceive it. But his flesh will be in pain over it, and his soul will mourn over it. So again, Job ends with this deeply sorrowful statement. One of the things that we wanted to address is what Job needs. And so there's, a, there's an important question that Job asks that I want to go back to. So we're going to go back to Job 9, verse 2. And we're going to look at the hope we have in Christ, grateful that we don't live during Job's time, that we live after Christ. We live after his resurrection. And so he asks this question in verse 2. Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? We have the answer. We have it. I want to read it. It's going to be on the screen here for you. Romans three nineteen through 26. So we're going to start. The first little paragraph is going to put us where Job was at. But this is where Job ends. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And that's where Job ends. That's why he has this question. But it didn't end there. Amen? But now... But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, filling in the place of something, taking the place of another. That's what that means. Being offered in the stead of something else. By his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. So how can one be righteous before God? 
because God declares him righteous. Uh, going on, because in his forbearance, right? That's patience. It's another word for that. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God is the one who justifies. We are righteous because he declares us righteous when we put our faith in Jesus. And Job needed a mediator. Chapter 9, verse 33. He alludes to this. He says, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on lay a, his hand on us both. Well, we do have a mediator, don't we? First Timothy 2, 5 through 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Praise God. We do have a mediator. And we can be declared righteous before God when we place our faith in Jesus. So that leads us to, what do we do with this, right? We don't want to be hearers only, but doers of the word. If you haven't, put your faith on Jesus. Um, he is trustworthy. Um, if, if you struggle with any part of this, you can start from a very logical standpoint of history. Did Jesus Christ actually live? Is he an historical person that actually lived? If, if this you know, spiritual, is there God, is there not God, is a hard place for you to start and to wrap your brain around, start with the logical, start with historical. Jesus is a real person, <laughs> absolutely, 100%. In fact, you can't deny it. Um, but if you haven't had a chance to do that, do that. No one can do that for you. No one can make that decision. It begins with repentance, taking a humble position like Job did, that I am nothing, I am sinful, and I am deserving of death. That's what I deserve. And that's where you begin, is at that humility, to be able to seek Christ and accept him standing in your place on the cross. Because you do, you did deserve the cross. Um, like we sang today, see him hanging there where I belong. That's where we begin. And that's how you learn to trust him, that he was able, because he is God, to be able to be the sacrifice in your place and to trust in him. And if you want to talk about it, I want to talk about it. So let's talk about it. Um, and I know for many, you may go to church your whole life and um, you've been in and out and you've told people you're a Christian. And so it may be hard for you because you're afraid of what that will look like or if that'll be awkward. doesn't matter in the grand scheme of the end, right? It doesn't matter if you look awkward today if you get to stand before God and declared righteous right? in the end. So don't, don't hold back on that. You have that opportunity. It's here for you. Now, if you have set your faith in Jesus, then set your hope on him if you've forgotten. Be reminded of that future hope, that hope that we have, that we will one day stand before him, that, he, that Christ will one day return. Uh, renew that hope in him and that future. Um, lead with humility. Think about humility all the time. Christ talked about it all the time, and he was the example you know, that scene where he washes the feet of the disciples and just incredible humility in that picture. But he, he, you know, lead with humility. Think, how can I put myself aside and put my ambitions and my hope 
any kind of pride that I may have aside and realize who I am in view of God. God is beyond comparison. And then put the truth of Christ and the gospel at the center of your thinking. Um, I know we can be distracted. We live in a very distracting world all the time. And I grew up compartmentalizing my life. You know, this is how things are when I'm here doing this. And here's another area of my life. And I had these areas of life where Christ wasn't in there, really. You know, it's like, that's just, that's my thing. It's not like I'm doing anything wrong. That's just, a, it's almost like morality didn't exist. We didn't need Christ. You may compartmentalize in that way. No, if you are Christ, then you're Christ's all the time. You belong to him. You're his child. There aren't compartments. He takes over everything in your life. That's what Lord means. If you call him Lord, that means he's the boss. He dictates everything, and you look to him. Well, how do, how do I hear him speak? Well, the Bible is the most obvious choice, but he can speak to your heart and your mind as well through the Spirit. Um, but seek his word. Um, the Bible is full of his direction for your life. Um, so yeah, always set Christ and the gospel. Um, again, looking forward to that future hope. If we are all going to die, and when we die, we will face judgment, then that is way more important than you know, anything else that you may be pursuing in your life. And to put it in that perspective at all times will help, help you with your choices, um, help you direct. So always put Christ and the gospel at the center of your thinking. Okay? All right. That's it. We blazed through. We got through 14. So I don't know the next time I'll be preaching, but we will pick up where we left off in 15. So let's pray, and then we'll go. Thank mm-hmm. you.